All right, open your Bibles to Ezekiel 46. Ezekiel 46. Feasts are featured in this chapter. In fact, it closes with a look at the kitchens that the Levites will use in their preparations for the various feasts during the millennial reign of Christ in His temple. First, though, we see the calendar Israel will follow in her feasts. And it begins in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east end shall be uh, shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. So much confusion about the Sabbath, and by that I mean whether or not Christians are obligated to observe it in some manner in this age in which we live. Over the years, we've suggested a multitude of reasons why we are definitely not under any obligation to keep or to observe the Sabbath. As we read the opening verses of chapter 46, we're going to see that the Sabbath will be observed again in the future millennium. This 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. The millennium simply means 1,000 years, milliannum. Uh, it's the Latin for a thousand years. Reading the regulations about the Sabbath in the millennium, uh, reading them carefully, we're going to see another reason why we are not under obligation to observe it now. Uh, and so you, you may not have ever been really cornered or uh, dealt with this, but there's, you know, there's a lot of people who uh, you know, tell you that you must observe the Sabbath or every now and then somebody you know uh, becomes a Sabbatarian. And there's, you know, we, we're familiar with the Adventists, the Seventh-day Adventists. That's pretty obvious. They put it right in their name. But there are a lot of other Seventh-day groups called Sabbatarians. Uh, there are Seventh-day Baptists and Seventh-day Pentecostals. And uh, there are no Seventh-day uh, Calvary chapels. Uh, but uh, there may be some. Well, they wouldn't last long. But anyway, uh, that's another story. So let's look at verse 2. The prince shall enter by the way of the vestibule, uh, of the uh, gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall sh uh, prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbaths and the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be one ephah for a ram and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give, as well as a hin of oil with every ephah. Now, if you haven't been here for our recent studies, we've established uh, in a couple of different ways that the prince is King David in his resurrected body acting as a co-regent with Jesus Christ. There's uh, numerous scriptures that promise David uh, the real David, who's from the Old Testament, that he will rule and reign with Christ in the uh, millennial kingdom. These verses tell us how David, the prince, will conduct the offerings for the weekly Sabbath. Now, here's something else to remember, something essential to remember about the Sabbath. It involved a whole lot more than just not doing work or resting, as it were. It required sacrifices be offered and not just any sacrifices in any place by anybody. Listen to Numbers 28 verses 9 and 10. On the Sabbath day, 
two lambs in their first year without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. This very particular extra sacrifice and offering could only be made by a Levitical priest at the prescribed place, which was the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. And so here's the thing. Seventh-day groups, like the Adventists, but there are many others, they want to burden you with their Sabbath-keeping regulations. But they are not, and they cannot observe the Sabbath as God prescribed it. It would require the burnt offering be made by a Levite in the temple. Right? Uh, So I don't... So... People come along and they say, oh, we have to observe or keep the Sabbath. Oh, how do we do that? Well, here are our rules for doing it. This is how we do it as Sabbatarians. Uh, And none of the way they do it today is the way God did it. And they're telling you, you have to do it in order to honor God because he wants it done. But he wants it done a certain way. Uh, He wants it done the way that he prescribed in the book of Numbers, and that can't be done today. If we can simply make up our own rules about how to observe the weekly Sabbath, then it's really not something God has prescribed for us to do, is it? It's something we want to do, something we think we need to do. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, trying not, I'm not trying to be too overbearing about this, but I think you understand, you know, the Sabbath had very specific regulations, And to say, well, we're not Jews, so we don't need to do the things the Jews did to keep the Sabbath. Well, what things do we need to do to keep the Sabbath? Then where do you read those regulations? I don't. Well, we just make up our own. We decide what what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work and all of that. Now, I don't have a problem with a person. I really don't who is conscientious and wants to keep or observe a Sabbath. I love the movie Chariots of Fire. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, but quite honestly, uh, he could have ran on the Sabbath. It would have solved a lot of problems. But uh, it's a great movie. And he, at that time, and his, you know, Eric Little, he had that conviction that, that that day belonged to God and God put him in that situation to bring glory to him. And he was running for God's glory. So I don't have any problem with that. If somebody wants to keep a Sabbath, if you want to keep the Sabbath, in your own way, as an offering unto God, that's fine. Where we get into trouble is when you or the other people say, and you must keep this, and everybody has to keep the Sabbath, and this is what God wants us all to do. Because we are making up our own rules about it, uh, it, you know, it's, it and, and we can't force our own rules on others. So if you really want to keep it, you just can't. Not the way that God prescribed it. So uh, don't be drawn into that. Here's uh, what one author wrote along those lines. He says, to keep the Sabbath today is to simply rest from your own efforts to save and heal and preserve or deliver yourself by your own works. The true rest is to rest by trusting in the sure promises of God found in the new covenant. So the truth is, we keep a spiritual Sabbath every day in the sense that we are resting in our salvation in Jesus Christ. Resting from works uh, of righteousness and just trusting in the grace of God. In the church age, we have entered into the spiritual rest of ceasing from form and ritual 
to try to observe the Sabbath, in my mind, is counterproductive. It subtracts from the freedom we have in Christ. Instead of rest, we add works. Don't do it. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's a bizarro world thing. It's like God said you should rest, and then we add works to our day of rest because everything becomes a, a, a burden. Uh, you know, and some of the Jewish rules that they added, you know, because they really got into this. And, you know, I, if you were, you know, if you were a tailor, you couldn't carry a sewing needle with you because, it, it, you know, it, it was considered work and you couldn't kindle a fire and you couldn't do all of these different things. Uh, and so it's a burden. Keeping the Sabbath is a, is a real burden when God intended it to just be a rest. We've entered into a, a lifetime of spiritual rest in Jesus Christ. And whenever we go back to these kinds of ritual things, they, tear, they bring us back down into a works relationship with God. Once again, I quote the conclusions of the church council at Jerusalem in the first century when they struggled with these issues. You know, should we keep some of these Jewish regulations? And uh, James, uh, the uh, leader of the council, said, Acts 15:28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice the Holy Spirit revealed this to them. They didn't come up with it themselves. This is a whole other study, but uh, there are those who believe that the, the leaders of the church have final say-so over what the Bible says or, you know, uh, that the authority of the church is greater than the authority of Scripture. But James is careful to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit who then revealed to us and we follow what God tells us to do. Lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell." So they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And so it was going on, as I told you last week, Judaizers, people who were trying to get Gentiles to keep the Sabbath and be circumcised and do some of these other things, um, uh, the council, all made up of Jews, they said, yeah, no, Gentiles don't have to do any of those things. They're not under the law. They've never been under the law. And that's not how you get saved. It doesn't complete your salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. Let's just ask the Gentiles not to offend Jews uh, by doing things that would offend them. Uh, Paul the Apostle applied this in his missionary journeys. Uh, you know, when, when he took Timothy with him, uh, he said, Now, Timothy, we're going to Jewish cities. Everybody knows that you're part Jewish. You're going to have to be circumcised Otherwise, nobody's going to listen to us. And so he had Timothy circumcised. Later on, Titus, strictly a Gentile, Gentile all the way. They said Titus should be circumcised. Paul said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen because he's a Gentile. And to circumcise him for the sake of circumcision would be to be putting ourselves under legalism. And so very simple, really. Uh, and so we're not under those regulations. We don't want to be put under those regulations. And there's nothing spiritual or mystical about going back to those traditions. Uh, a lot of people feel like, you know, they went through this kind of a ceremony or service and it seemed more like a, it seemed more reverent, it seemed more holy. Uh, and to me, it reminds me of the way the Pharisees and scribes acted in the New Testament. They, they always thought that Jesus and his disciples were having way too much fun. They didn't do some of the, they didn't wash their hands properly and they, they didn't observe this or that. Uh, and, and Jesus, at one point, he compared it to the bridegroom and his, and his uh, groomsmen. He said, hey, we're having a great time. 
<laughs> you can fast later, but right now we're having a swell time, you know. And so uh, we don't want to, you know, uh, we don't want to get under those kinds of things as if they're more spiritual. So no Sabbath for you. In verse 1, there was a mention of the new moon. Israel followed a lunar calendar, and so the phases of the moon were significant. The next three verses address the sacrifices for this time of the new moon. Verse 6, on the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish, six lambs and a ram. They shall be without blemish. He shall prepare a grain offering of an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Let me quote some stuff from a Jewish website. A couple of times the writer will say we, and he's referring to those of a Jewish heritage. It was very interesting. He says this, The Jewish calendar is lunar, each month beginning on the new moon. The new months were determined by observation. When the new moon was observed, the Sanhedrin declared the beginning of a new month and sent out messengers to tell people exactly when the new month began. People in distant communities could not always be notified of the new moon, and therefore the first day of the month, so they did not know the correct day to celebrate. They knew that the old month would be either 29 or 30 days, so if they didn't get notice of the new moon, they celebrated holidays on both possible days. So, I mean, you might think, well, why don't they just look for themselves and decide it's the new moon? Well, you could, except that the Sanhedrin had final say-so. And so you weren't sure, you know, if, okay, I think it's the new moon, but is it really the new moon? Did the, you know, is that, what did the Sanhedrin say? And so you had to really get their notification. Uh, and because news traveled slowly in those days, even in that small land, uh, there wasn't, you know, really mass communication. Uh, oftentimes, they would celebrate these holidays on both of the possible days it could be the new moon because they didn't want to miss uh, the day. So you might notice the author says that the number of days of some holidays don't accord with what the Bible specifies. In most cases, we celebrate one more day than the Bible requires because in ancient times they were not notified on time. This practice of celebrating an extra day was maintained as a custom even after we adopted a precise mathematical calendar because it was the custom of our ancestors. This extra day is not celebrated by Israelis regardless of whether they are in Israel at the time of the holiday because it is not the custom of their ancestors. It is celebrated by everybody else even if they are visiting Israel at the time of the holiday. It's hard to be Jewish. It, it, to figure out exactly what you're supposed to be doing and exactly on what day. But do you understand that? If you're a native Israeli, you always knew when the actual new moon was according to what the Sanhedrin said. But if you're not an Israeli, you developed a custom of celebrating two holidays. And even if you're in Israel, you still do that. But if you're an Israeli out of Israel, you don't do that. Got it? All right. All Jewish holidays begin the evening before the date specified on most calendars. This is because a Jewish day begins and ends at sunset rather than at midnight. If you read the story of creation in Genesis, you'll notice it says, and there was evening and there was morning one day. From this we infer that a day begins with evening, sunset. Holidays end at nightfall of the date specified on most calendars. That is at the time when it becomes dark out about an hour after sunset. Uh, and so, interesting stuff. The world is going to be back on a lunar calendar during 
the millennium. All these holidays will mean that lots of people will be going in and coming out of the temple offering sacrifices. These next two verses indicate that there will be rules for coming and going. Verse 9, But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. Whoever enters by way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go in, he shall go in, and when they go out, he shall go out. And so, um, uh, you know, does this have to be said, really? I mean, that that people are going to follow an orderly path uh, during this time? Well, I, I don't think we can emphasize too much that God is orderly. Yes, he is romantic and creative and poetic and artistic. None of that cancels out the fact that he is orderly and not prone to confusion. And so this is just basic crowd control, but it's specified. He says, look, if you come in through the north gate, you go out through the south gate. Come into the south gate, you go out through the north gate. We don't want people running into each other. Uh, We need to keep an orderly procession. We, therefore, must be orderly while also giving room for the romantic, the artistic, the poetic. I, you know, I think we have a great facility and that we use it with real creativity. And one of the things I, I'm really happy about is that our different, we do different things at different services and, and have different kinds of order. Uh, on Sunday morning, we try and keep as much order as possible in the main sanctuary by restricting uh, the age of children in there. It's a, it's a small area. It's easy, you're easily distracted. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's not to say children are not the heritage of the Lord or that we don't like children or anything like that. It's just, you know, that's, that's the order that we want. Then we have all kinds of other places where uh, kids can hang out. Uh, probably if I wasn't the pastor and I just attended church, I'd, have church, I'd come to the fellowship hall and just sit and drink coffee and eat donuts all the time, you know, and watch Gene or Jacob teach, you know, and stuff and make jokes or whatever. I mean, you know, so, so there's the fellowship hall for families, there's, you know, the balcony and, and there's all these different venues, you know. Occasionally somebody will come to me uh, and, and they'll say, hey, I've noticed that some people, they just hang out in the cafe all Sunday morning. They're not really getting the word, you know, maybe we should shut down the cafe. So I'm just happy that they're here. You know, and, and uh, the Lord will work on their heart. Let's, let's not start making rules like that. Let's just get people here. So we've got that going on. Then we come to Wednesday night. It's, you know, totally different. Kids are in here. We've got kids' worship going on. Uh, you know, people are standing. People are sitting. People, we're doing all kinds of different things. And so order is important, but we also give room for creativity and passion and uh, poetic stuff and all of that. And so, you know, God is a God of order uh, there's nothing more spiritual necessarily about spontaneity. And most groups or individuals that are spontaneous are spontaneous in an orderly way. And, and I, I don't say this to demean anybody, but over the years, um, a lot of the people I know who think that they're really spirit-led, uh, they kind of go through the same routine every week when they're worshiping the Lord. Uh, they even say the same kind of mantra. Uh, I sometimes joke with the guys about the time we were in Japan and it just, you know, I love going to these foreign countries and worshiping with other believers and, and I, I actually I enjoy Pentecostal worship services. They're a blast. You know, they're, the people are excited and they're happy and stuff, but 
I'll never forget this one time we were praying before the service and, and um, because we were guests and I guess it was my turn and they said, well, Gene, why don't you lead us in prayer? And I go, all right, well, let's pray. And as soon as I said that, it was on. There was one guy right next to me and his idea of being spontaneous was to go, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. He did that about ten times until, you know. And uh, uh, another guy was saying, yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, Holy Spirit. You know, and that kind of a thing. And I realized that this was their usual spontaneity. I mean, this, they were spontaneous in a very orderly way. This is what they always did. I've known folks over the years uh, who, when they speak in tongues, for example, you have a service and... You say, okay, it's all right. if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, they always say the same thing over and over again. It's a, it be, and typically, it's something that they learned at a Pentecostal church when they came forward to receive the gift of tongues and they didn't really receive it, but they gave them something to say. They, and this happens because well-meaning Christians will say, hey, you know, you, we believe that you have to have the gift of tongues to prove that you're a Christian. And you're sitting there and you, you don't feel it. And they say, well, here, say this, you know, uh, Shirohanda. Say Shirohanda over and over again. Uh, which we always make fun of that it's she rode a Honda very, you know, real fast. But Shiro Honda, Shiro Honda. And then that person, they feel like they've received the gift of tongues. And then for the rest of their Christian life, when that moment comes in the service, the worship service for people to cut loose and speak in tongues, they just stand there saying Shiro Honda, Shiro Honda, Shiro Honda over and over and over again. And I find it a little bit tragic, to, to be honest with you. We believe that there is a gift of tongues, a real gift of tongues, and, and uh, it's a language. It's not just a, a word. It's not a, it's not a, a meditation, uh, you know. And so, uh, it, anyway, so spontaneity isn't all it's cracked up to be. Uh, it's usually orderly. Uh, and so if you're going to be orderly, be orderly in an orderly way. Uh, and, and give room for creativity at the same time. And so, uh, verse 11. At the festivals and the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. Now, <coughs> excuse me, when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall then be opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day, then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut. The prince figures prominently in all these celebrations. He serves as a facilitator, but also as an example to the people. Here's a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He said, good ministers preach the word, godly ministers practice it. Let's open that up to all of us as Christians, not just preachers. Uh, teaching precepts is one thing, providing the example is something else. And, and I personally think uh, it's more powerful and spiritual for a person to live out their Christianity than to just talk about it. And uh, so you want to be uh, looking for that. Uh, verse 13, And you shall uh, daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning. You shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hint of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. Now in the Old Testament, the burnt offering was a staple of the temple. 
Burn offerings were made every day in the morning and in the evening. An additional burn offering was to be offered up each Sabbath day. Also at the beginning of each month, at the celebration of Passover, on the 14th day of the first month, along with new grain offerings at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets, on the Day of Atonement and for the celebration of the new moon. And so the burn offering was something that was just a staple. Most of the sacrifices benefited the offerer and the priest in addition to being pleasing to God. Sometimes the offerer would eat some of the meat of the sacrificial animal, and most often the priest would receive a portion of it as well. But not so the burnt offering. Neither the offerer nor the priest partook of any of the meat. It was all burned in the fire. The hide of the animal was the priest's only portion. Every day for a thousand years in the future kingdom will be a burnt offering in the morning, as, as, as well as during these other special times. Why the evening offering ceases, no one has a clue. Uh, but it'll ruin the sales of Spurgeon's morning and evening. Uh, because it'll just have to be morning and morning, I guess, because there, there's no evening oblation. It does help to remind us that these verses are definitely prophetic. Israel has never worshipped like this in a temple before. Uh, they, they would have offerings morning and evening. Remember, we're talking to the Jews in the Babylonian exile. When they returned and set up the temple again, they went back to the regular Old Testament regulation, morning and evening and all of these other things. Even though they had Ezekiel's prophecies and writings, they understood that Ezekiel was talking about a far future temple when the Lord was on the earth. They they were not mistaken about this uh, at all. And so they kept themselves under uh, the Old Testament Mosaic law, looking forward to this time. Verse 16, thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons, it is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, after which it shall return to the prince. His inheritance shall belong to his sons, it shall become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. <clears throat> not that we need it, but here is additional proof that the prince is not Jesus because he has sons. David will have sons and they will have an inheritance. Now, <clears throat> if he gives land to others, it will revert back to the original owners in the year of liberty. The mention of him taking the inheritance of others isn't to indicate David or any, you know, might get greedy. It's to remind us that not only will there be a weekly Sabbath, there will be a sabbatical year, a Sabbath year that occurs every seven years, and a jubilee year every 50th year. It is then that the land reverts back to its inherited owners. Leviticus 25 describes the Old Testament jubilee. Uh, Jubilee simply means liberty. The Jubilee year was proclaimed with the sound of a trumpet on the Day of Atonement so that everybody knew the Holy Year had begun. God owns all the land, and in the Jubilee, He wanted the return of every man to his own possession, his own inheritance. Men who worked as a servant to pay off their debt were freed, and they were allowed to return to their own land and to their own families. And so it was an interesting system that they had in those days. God said, this land is mine, 
and I've given it to you by tribe, and that land must stay in the name of that tribe. And so whatever you do and however you sell yourself and whatever debt you, you know, uh, in the Jubilee year, all of that is canceled, and everybody goes back to their original ownership. There are going to be 20 such Jubilee years in the millennium. There's no Day of Atonement celebrated, so I'm not sure when or how it will be proclaimed. Now, I'm going to share something I came across while researching the Jubilee. I don't want you patriots out there to think I'm a traitor, nor do I want you to think I've gone superstition by, uh, superstitious by watching too much Discovery Channel. I'm just reporting what I read. It's cited in something called the Digest of Divine Law. Here it is. The Liberty Bell, currently located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is an iconic symbol of American independence. The bell's first inscribed lines quote, part of the Jubilee call found in the King James Bible, version of Leviticus 25.10. How many of you knew this? Raise your hand. Homeschoolers, you knew this. The entire text of the Bible verse with the part inscribed on the bell's top line in capitals is, and you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. I think whoever was searching for just the right verse for the liberty bell just went to Nave's topical Bible and found liberty and thought, here's a verse about liberty, but they didn't realize that it was about the jubilee year. On July 8, 1776, the bell rang out, summoning the people to hear the reading of America's Declaration of Independence. Now, this is the writer, not me. Unfortunately, the United States has not obeyed the law of Jubilee. It is widely believed the bell cracked in 1835 A.D. while being rung. The crack, which occurred roughly 50 years after America's War of Independence ended in 1783, was severe enough to cause the bell never to be rung again. Periodic economic depressions have occurred in the United States about every 50 years. You tell me if that's, uh, if that's true or not. The chapter ends with the description of the kitchens and cooking stations of the Levites. Verse 19, Now he brought me through the entrance which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priests which faced toward the north. And there a place was situated at their extreme western end. And said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering and where they shall bake the grain offering so that they do not bring them out into the court uh, to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out into the inner co- outer court excuse me, and caused me to pass by four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court, there was another court. In the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. All four corners were the same size. There was a row of building stones all around in them and all around the four of them. And cooking hearths were made under the rows of stones and around. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple will boil the sacrifices of the people. And so there's going to be a lot of cooking going on in the millennial temple. Uh, I just think it's kind of cute that they mention the kitchens here. I think the kitchens will be old school, as a matter of fact, as far as gizmos and gadgets uh, some of you guys who like to barbecue, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the feel I get for this. The kitchens for the priests are to be at the west end of the priest chambers adjacent to the temple. Kitchens for the sacrifices of the people will be in the four corners of the outer court. When the people offer fellowship offerings to the Lord, they will be allowed to eat part of the sacrifice in a fellowship meal. So as we close tonight, it's interesting, this all points to fellowship 
being a result of the sacrifices. I don't know that we often think about this. Certainly, you know, whether we're thinking about the millennial sacrifices, trying to put that into perspective, or looking back on the Old Testament sacrifices, you know, I, I tend to just think of the fact that they would bring the animal and, and sacrifice it, you know, and, 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 and all. Uh, and I don't think so much about them partaking of it and feasting on it and, uh, and, you know, and, and yet a lot of times in these sacrifices, that is what took place. The priests and the people would eat together. They would share uh, the meal together after those sacrifices. Uh, and so uh, there is this dimension of fellowship that we sometimes uh, overlook. It wasn't just, here's my ram, take it, slit its throat, I'm free now of my obligation. It's not, it's not like a fast food approach to, you know, that. I mean, they would just... This would take a lot of time. Those of you who, uh, you know, have skill at butchering animals, and so, I mean, you know, this is all taking a lot of time. People are hanging around. Food has to cook, and you know, and all this kind of stuff. And and so this, these are times of fellowship. And so uh, I, you, this is going to sound you're going to laugh, but you know, we do a lot around food here. Uh, we we eat a great deal uh, here at Calvary Chapel of Hanford, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, you know, whether it's apples of gold or steak and study or just any excuse that we can come up with uh, to have, you know, some kind of food. Uh, it, it's, it's a reminder that we should slow down, whether we're actually eating or not, we need to slow down and, and have fellowship. And so I would encourage you, of course, the Wednesday night crowd, I mean, you guys are deep into this or else you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night, you know, but even on a Sunday morning, uh, just to encourage people to slow down, hang around. If you're not going to work, you don't have to be to work. Just hang around and just fellowship. Whether you grab a donut or not, uh, you know that that's really what it's all about. In in one sense, when you know when you're done feasting on the word, spending time with one another uh, in fellowship, encouraging one another.